Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Oren Frank. He's the CEO of Talkspace, a therapy app that he co-founded with his wife, Ronnie, and that just went public last month via SPAC. Talkspace has a simple premise, swapping the Freudian couch for your phone. Instead of going into an office once a week, their therapy sessions are all done remotely by texts, phone calls, and or video. The company is part of a growing trend of telemedicine and serving a booming business of mental health But remote health raises all kinds of questions about quality control, accountability, and of course, privacy. All of that seemed particularly important when it comes to letting a stranger inside of your head. Hi, Oren. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. So I have a lot to ask you. There's so much, you know, I haven't really covered therapy apps that much, although this pandemic has really shown how telemedicine has really come to the fore. Um, First, explain to people how it works. You sign up. So you go to the website or you download the app, respond to a short questionnaire so we can verify that you're safe and have an indication to as, as to why you're coming over here. And then you will either talk to a, a matching agent who is a licensed therapist himself or herself, or you'll go through a, an automated process that will find a match for you. And typically you will start between a few hours uh, with a max of 24 hours. And then you will start therapy. You can choose a plan that is either based on messaging only or a mix of messaging and live or based mostly on live. So typically video sessions with the messaging, uh, I would say, augmenting that in between. What would you compare your therapy apps to? Some people have compared it to Tinder. Other people say it's just what we've just done over the past year uh, during COVID. How do you look at it? I actually think it's it's way more traditional and boring than what uh, people typically tend to think about it. We are we consider ourselves a healthcare company. We conduct ourselves as a healthcare company, and we only use licensed clinicians, whether psychotherapists and psychiatrists. And therefore, it's actually way more similar to what is fondly called traditional therapy or psychiatry, mm-hmm. the one that is being, you know, done face to face in an office setting. It's the same people, it's the same discipline, it's the same, uh, I would say, education and training. The delivery mechanism, if you will, is very different. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not fond of being called an app. We're not. We're a company. We're a healthcare company. We have hundreds of employees. Most of them are not involved in the front end of a messaging app. That's really the tip of the of the iceberg. We're a healthcare company that communicates with some of its members or patients through an app. But that's what you're known for, correct? I mean, the idea that you can be, that people can access therapists not 24-7, but on a on a regular basis right. using an app therapy, essentially. Or no, you don't think that. So if it's okay with you, I'll go back and do, a, you know, a very basic and reduced analysis of what's keeping behavioral health from being accessible and with good outcomes for everyone. If we reduce it really dramatically, it's about access and quality. If we focus on the access part, 
messaging, and, and by the way, it's not just text, it's audio and video, is extremely helpful in, in removing the access barriers and allowing many more people in need to actually connect with the therapist or, uh, and, and create a very strong and deep engagement with them very quickly because it's so intense and frequent. Uh, so it is a very important part of our base product and our legacy. And of course, we offer live audio and live video. And so we, we have the entire gamut, but many people are so stigmatized or so hesitant to either go and seek help that messaging seems to be a particularly good fit for them. It allows for the removal of some of the stigma. Um, I can tell you the first time I went to see a therapist face-to-face, it was extremely awkward. It feels judgmental. It feels strange to be talking to a stranger about something that's very painful or important for you. Okay. So right now you have 60,000 active users, is that correct? Yes. Okay. But around 55 million people theoretically have access to Talkspace. You've been very active in working with schools, health insurance plans, companies, et cetera. That's, that's a big difference. Why is it only 60,000 users? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And that's exactly why we went public and why we want to scale, essentially, scale our vision, which, you know, therapy for all is still essentially what we believe we should do. Um, I think the number of 55 million covered lives is very misleading because those are covered lives within, mostly within the portfolio of large insurance plans sure. that have added us as an in-network. Uh, yeah, just so you know, that's from your PR materials, but go ahead. <laughs> so you wrote it, not me. I know, yeah. Um, and the other thing to know is that it, this was added mostly in the last 18 months. As we started going into enterprise markets just about two or three years ago, and the beginning of B2B organizations are very slow. I'm sure you're you're familiar with this. Mm-hmm. It takes time. And Talkspace, you know, our strategy is about ubiquity. We want to be available for everyone and anyone according to their choice. We want to be available as part of your EAP offering, and we want to be available as a medical benefit from your college or perhaps your city or directly from your employer that understands. So when you think about the, the incentives for people doing this, yeah. when you're getting people this therapy for all idea, which, you know, you you were in Subways, I remember it, um, and you did a lot of marketing. Your your background is marketing, for example. Correct. Um, one of the things that one worries about when you think about healthcare, especially around therapy, is that companies and governments want to check the boxes and want to claim they're providing therapy for their employees in the easiest way possible. Marketing is one thing, but getting people actual help is another. I completely agree. And therefore, I'm, we're so focused on utilization and on clinical outcomes because you have to prove that you can uh, uh, walk the talk. But then again, I wouldn't underestimate the notion of getting in, into therapy as a way to remove stigma. I think that speaking about stigma is a little bit of a BS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because it's very easy to do the right thing and say we shouldn't have stigma, but the most efficient way in our minds to remove stigma is actually go and speak with the professional because we do believe that the mere fact of trying it for real is going to yield really good results for people, for organizations, and, and for all of us as a, as, as a community and as a culture. Okay, so one of the things that's interesting is that um, even though people have not done the uptake, there's been more and more demand for telehealth and there's been more people who are depressed during the the pandemic. Talkspace has around 3,000 active therapists and prescribers and about 60,000 active users. Could you serve all the potential clientele you're generating through these contracts and this marketing 
And more broadly speaking, the demand for mental health services seems to be outpacing the supply of therapists. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think the demand for mental health or the need for mental health was there all the time. The demand has been made legitimized or made a little more kosher through COVID because face-to-face was really not available and because, unfortunately, COVID drove a lot of depression, anxiety, and other conditions. But the gap between what the market was providing and what the real need uh, was and is existed way before COVID and was neglected for years. Only around 40% of people that have crossed the clinical threshold receive any kind of access. And more worryingly, for the people that do have access, only about 40% of them show clinical remission rates. So it is a very broken set of uh, professions in the way it's being delivered in the United States way, way before uh, COVID. Now, contrary to popular belief, we don't think there is a significant shortage of psychotherapists in the United States. The shortage really appears when you try to match them within a reasonable driving distance around uh, where you reside. Right now, it's state-by-state situation, correct? Yeah. You have to match people with therapists that are licensed in their state of residence. They don't have to reside there. Yeah. So one of the things that's been interesting here, you described Talkspace in like six different ways. Do you think of it as a platform or a medical clinic? You described yourself as a healthcare company, a software company. Uh, You're obviously in a a little bit of a marketing company. What do you think it is? So I think it's a technology healthcare company, which is a healthcare company that uses technology or the writing of code in order to deliver clinical outcomes and improve clinical outcomes and access, as opposed to the, I would say, the older generation of healthcare companies, which are essentially a services company with a lot of people and an IT department. Um, So I don't want to pick any specific description, but I think the platform notion is correct because a platform allows you to learn from your own practices and improve care for the next cohorts of members and patients and do better over time. For that, you have to be a technology and data company with a platform. So, but you have a chief medical officer, your wife is the head of clinical services, you offer psychiatric services. So it's not just like a benign platform or, you know, a, a matcher of people. No, no, no. What you describe as a platform, I would call a marketplace. We're definitely not a marketplace because our chief goal is the clinical outcome. But what is your responsibility and liability? Let's talk about user experience, because a lot of platforms say we don't have responsibility. But do you think your Talkspace platform has responsibility to its customers? By being a healthcare company and by offering uh, medical services such as uh, psychiatry and psychotherapy, uh, we will always have a responsibility, even in the way this is structured. If, God forbid, something happens to a patient on our platform, we will get sued. You cannot sue uh, Facebook because of 230, as you know very extremely well. Uh, And maybe that will change in the next six months, maybe not, but it is not even part of your cards because they have defined themselves as something that is um, nothing. Okay, so some people feel that telemedicine is necessarily reductive. It's fine for the flu, but what about the patient with cancer? How do you think about acute psychological conditions or users with more severe symptoms? Right. How much responsibility should you have if something goes wrong? Yeah, so first of all, I think that um, virtual care is a particularly good fit for behavioral health far better than other, I would say, medical verticals because there are no blood tests or x-rays or ways 
or, or, or physical touch that are needed to uh, come up with diagnosis, prognosis, et cetera, or treatment courses. So it lends itself far better to a conversation like the one that we're having now, and it's a really good fit. Now, it does not mean two things. First of all, it is not here to replace face-to-face therapy. I actually love this. I think that the people that can afford the time and the money and the, perhaps the cultural background to do that will keep on doing that. I've been doing it for very long years and we do not compete with that. We are here to open up an option for people who cannot do it or will not do it, which is unfortunately majority, the vast majority of the population. Regarding conditions and acuity... Like suicidal ideation. I mean, yeah. mo- most most therapists are always on guard for suicide, even if it's someone who's just there for anxiety. I mean, that's something they should Correct. be paying attention to all the time. So the, I believe that around 80% of the conditions and the uh, acuities can be treated virtually within psychotherapy. Within psychiatry, um, I would say the number is probably lower. And people that come in with certain conditions such as uh, personality disorders, schizophrenia, et cetera, that they're definitely not a good fit for virtual care. We will refer them out. We will never treat someone who's not a good fit for the platform. So we always try to do the right thing for the patient and the, considering their clinical um, condition and acuity. So that's where you're aiming for. That's what you're aiming for is the ones that are yeah. better suited. But how much responsibility should you have if something goes wrong? Um Responsibility is divided across every stakeholder. The therapists and the psychiatrists have their own responsibility, which are, is built into the profession. So the duty to warn and to report, and we help them do that. And we as a company, we have a duty to measure the outcomes and make sure that they only work with credentialed people and not with people who are claiming to be who they're not. So there's a whole line of responsibilities that aggregate there, which is pretty similar to... I don't know if you're covered by Optum or by Aetna or by Cigna. So in that sense, it's all out there. We are a healthcare company. Okay. Um, I can tell you that, and I'm going to touch wood uh, very strongly here. We have never been sued. We have close to 2 million people who went through our platform, never been sued. Um, we're an extremely responsible and well-managed organization that aims to provide a good enough service not to get to that point. So it's not been tested. How do users submit complaints? Right. So when users have a clinical complaint, so a complaint against the level of service or the therapist or the psychiatrist, et cetera, et cetera, they will approach our customer service and they will submit this complaint. We actually, as you said, have a chief medical officer and a quality and a complaint management committee that meets regularly. This is how you do this in healthcare. It's regulated, it's prescribed, and they will review the complaint. They will either approach the uh, therapist or psychiatrist to discuss with them, or they will look at the clinical records and ascertain whether the complaint was uh, justified or not. It's part of our uh, quality management policies, as you have to have when you're uh, HIPAA compliant. And I can tell you that there is a small subset of uh, providers that are being essentially escorted off the Talkspace uh, network because they either do not provide good enough uh, outcomes. So you've kicked uh, therapists off the platform. That's essentially yes. escorted off. That's a very nice way of putting it. What, yes. what, what, for what reason? For, you know, either um, the, the more rare ones have to do with clinical quality. So just... 
I would say, unprofessional behavior within, uh, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that with thousands of therapists, this is probably one of the best populations that you will ever get to work with. But from time to time, you do find a bad apple and they will misbehave on the platform. They will just treat people wrongly or they will not show up or any combination of those issues, of course. I can tell you that we measure clinical outcomes for each patient so we can associate it with the therapist or psychiatrist that treated them and know how good they are at treating this condition or that condition, therefore rank them. That allows us to manage the quality of the network and the bottom 5% are sometimes uh, retrained. But you don't think being virtual makes it more likely for bad apples like this to exist? No, I actually think the other way around, and I'll tell you why, our onboarding and training process is extremely structured and long, and we will only allow a provider to start with a very small number of patients to begin with, let them run for a few weeks or months, see that everything is okay, have a clinical supervisor or the chief medical officer speak with them, see what they do, how the uh, patients react, and only then open up the capacity. I'm not saying that we're better. I can tell you that what we're doing, I know what the outcomes are. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app, You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Esther Perel, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Oren Frank after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So let's talk about data privacy. You wrote a piece arguing that data should be anonymized, aggregated, and shared for medical research. You wrote, quote, the more anonymous data we collect, demographic and medical, the better we can identify causes, diagnose early, and develop better treatments. A part of me agrees with you. At the same time, it's kind of chill down my back reading that you might want my data, especially psychiatric data, Explain yourself here for people who might find the idea of sharing so much personal data to be chilling. You know, I, I, when I wrote that, I also felt it part of that chill that you mentioned because I understand the implications. 
But I think we live in a world where we, the amount of data that we generate across all of our lifestyles and, and verticals and including healthcare is just enormous. Now, that data is not going to go away, is not going to be reduced despite the best of efforts from governments and from regulators. It's not going to be not produced in the future because we will keep using technology in oh so many ways. And I wanted to ask the question, what is the upside of this data? And if you look at traditional healthcare, you will see that the data is priceless because if you and I, God forbid, needed to go and see a, you know, a, a heart surgeon, we would definitely want to know about the procedure, how many times it was done, what's the outcomes, what's the danger of death, what are the side effects, and so on and so forth. And I personally would have also asked for for the data of that particular surgeon that will do something for me, because I want to know if he did it two times or 2,000 times, and so on and so forth. So you think more data, the better, as long as it's anonymized? Yes. I think the key here is two things, and, I, and again, I reduce it dramatically. His, you know, foolproof anonymization. And secondly, is massive enforcement of people who do wrong things with uh, medical data. But large-scale regressions, also known as uh, machine learning, are absolutely crucial for the improvement of uh, outcomes, both in behavioral health and to my very limited knowledge in other areas of healthcare. So particularly what do you do now? If some former employees and therapists said Talkspace reviews and minds anonymized transcripts of conversations with users. So what type of conversation does your company collect? So reviews and minds is wrong, okay. uh, despite, right. what, despite what to say, and we do not use that. The only way we use uh, conversations is actually for pattern recognition, so machine learning, and for clinical research. Just to be very clear, we never sold and we don't sell any of our data. We never share it with anyone uh, unless it is a very reduced set for clinical research. So I'll give you an example. You talked about risk before. So we developed um, a machine learning algorithm that predicts risk. And the way we did this is we sent this model into anonymized rooms only where therapists have launched a risk protocol. Let's say that you're my therapist and you mm-hmm. treat me and you think that I am at risk because I spoke about uh, I want to harm myself, I want to harm others or other things. You have to initiate uh, a, a protocol that's called the risk protocol. Now, that model looked at all the rooms where therapists have vetted this patient at risk and then looked at the anonymized language of those patients 60 to 90 days before the therapist announced the risk and looks for combinations of words, sentences, et cetera, et cetera, that were common across those people. And out of that created a predictive model. That predictive model goes into the anonymized rooms every 30 minutes. Um, this is a working tool for the, the therapists are enjoying today. And where the tool thinks there is a risk, it will send a message to the therapist and will tell them room number 24, 45, et cetera, et cetera, may have a list. Please have a look. So this is how we, if you will, you know, <laughs> mine those uh, data. Everything that we do is only used for one thing, which is provide better clinical decision support tools for the therapists. Okay. What about marketing campaigns? No. Some former employees have alleged that. None whatsoever. Never. Not used to find common phrases to try to better no, target people. No. 
Now, you know some former employees have alleged that you do. Do you have any response to that? Yes, I, I think, I, unfortunately, this is not true. We have never used this for marketing. Most of our marketing is very, very simple. It is about the availability of someone that can help you deal with your issues. So, no, the answer is no. And we, we do not plan to use clinical. We will never, as long as I am in charge, you know, we're not going to use clinical information for anything else other than clinical. So only to do risk profiles and what else? And there are several other models that are supplying similar insights to the therapists themselves. So there's one that will predict the diagnosis, right? We look at the language and say the history of our analysis thinks that this person may have a primary diagnosis of depression and a secondary uh, uh, diagnosis of uh, anxiety. It is up to the therapist to decide whether this is correct or not. And this is how the therapist actually trained this model. So if they will accept this suggestion, they will have sent a positive signal to that uh, module. And if they rejected it and put something else, they will have trained it a little more. There are a couple of mores around clinical approaches, interventions, all are purely clinical. None of them has to so do... So it's only for clinical. Yes. Nothing to marketing, no. nothing to build a chatbot. But are you building a chatbot? Nope. You are not. We have toyed with chatbots in, in the past. So personally, I 40 years ago, I played with Eliza. I'm pretty familiar with that area. There's one called Wobot, I think, an AI-powered service. Yes, I know Wobot pretty well. Mm-hmm. My two cents, and that's exactly what it's worth, is that I think that it, it is not in my foreseeable future, the way I see technology in the future, that this will in any way, shape, or form replace a human. Everything that we build in terms of technology is aimed at assisting a human to make better decisions, not replacing them. I don't like that at all. And I don't think it's doable. I think the the self-service solutions, including robots and chatbots, are probably good for the subclinical cohort, who we call the worried well. And I think that can be helpful there. So an older person, are you lonely, would you like to say? Um, Or I just had an argument with my boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm not depressed. I didn't cross the clinical threshold, but I do want to interact with someone and I do need to learn something and perhaps generate the time to think about what I'm going through. And I, I think those automated tools and the software tools and the content tools are a good fit for that. So would you develop that, a chatbot for the worried well? Um, not necessarily a chatbot, but I think the worried world need help as well. It is not as important or as urgent as people that are clinically uh, ill. And therefore, it's a secondary um, priority for us. But I can tell you that uh, we bought a company a very, very nice platform called Lasting in uh, October or November last year, which is a self-service, not a chatbot. It's built on clinical practices of couples counseling, but it does not involve a human. Okay. So, and at the same time, we do offer a couple counseling with a licensed trained uh, therapist. Uh, So I think that's a good example on how to build the hierarchy of the services according to the acuity of the patients. Finishing up the idea of privacy, text therapy takes confidential information outside of the therapist's notebook and leaves a digital footprint, no matter how you slice True. it here. And obviously, we've been hit by ransomware issues recently, all kinds of data breaches. Are you concerned about Talkspace's data being hacked? Yeah, of course. You know, This is priority number one for me, and number two and number three, the safety and the privacy of, uh, of our information. 
I think being a technology company and being a virtual player actually helps in this. Um, and I think our level of security is banking grade. So your information is as safe as your money is, but it's still something that is, as, as we go back to our discussion before, that data is being generated. And I think we have to bear in mind another thing, which is, I'm going back to our old favorite uh, topic. I think Facebook knows far more about my mental condition than anyone else in my healthcare environment because they're not bound by any of the regulations that we actually apply to ourselves. So that is, for me, much more worrying. I would say Amazon does, actually, <laughs> from your purchases. That, that's a good question, you know. I think Amazon does. They know what, I bet they know a lot more. They, or they could glean things. Yeah, uh, probably. So you went public via SPAC last month. This is these special uh, purpose acquisition companies. By merging with Hudson Executive Investment Corporation, the deal valued your company at $1.4 billion and gave you around $250 million in growth capital. Why did you do a SPAC and why now? I think, the, let's put it like that, uh, uh, through COVID, we have had multiple approaches from strategic uh, potential buyers, from private equity. Like Aetna? Like those kind of people? Um, I wouldn't name names, but uh, we, we had multiple approaches about what is the future of uh, talk space. Because unfortunately, you know, COVID brought a lot of awareness to behavioral health and the gap was uh, dramatically uh, increased and, and uh, illuminated, let's put it like that. And the reason we chose a SPAC and this particular SPAC was twofold. First of all, uh, the SPAC decision is about time to market. It reduces the workload and the complexity of going uh, public to a certain degree. Uh, but the real reason was the identity of the people behind this particular SPAC. It just felt very good in terms of the people we will be working with and we are working now, their experiences, their deep uh, know-how around healthcare and, and how to build healthcare companies. And what are you going to use the $250 million for? Are you looking to expand internationally, for example? So we want to use that in order to do a few things. We want to expand our, uh, I would say, efforts in getting more corporate or enterprise clients. And also, you know, to be honest, a generational shift. I think uh, the current employees are made of millennials and Gen Zs. They are way smarter. They are far less stigmatized. And they are way more demanding in terms of access to behavioral health care and to wellness. And that in turn affects the major employers and they look for better solutions. And therefore, this is a really strong opportunity for us to scale dramatically in commercial markets. So that is one priority. The second one, to which connects to some of the questions you asked me before, is we want to work on our scope. We would love to add substance use solutions to it, which is a huge and evolving problem uh, in the United States, especially after COVID. And also the alternative cost of treating people with alcohol use disorders is just unbearably high. Perhaps we can do something different there, which is both better and cheaper, as I mentioned before, and perhaps add those uh, more of those services like lasting for the worried well, which will encompass a, a larger population. So and other acquisitions, that's essentially what you're saying. Uh, perhaps we have not made the decision whether this is going to be an acquisition or partnership or building internally, which I personally usually favor, but all three are on the table. What about an analog, buying an analog clinic? Do you see that happening? Um, I can see that happening, not immediately. I, again, as I mentioned before, we have nothing against uh, the brick and mortar model. And personally, I have a lot for it. 
And perhaps one future will be a mix of those with the right people receiving the best care for them, which is always the, the priority. It is not in the plan for the next uh, one to two years. Okay. So one of the things that's been really interesting is people are wary of talk space and et cetera, not just talk space, but the whole space in terms of, of being uh, privacy sieve, mining information, for example, You've been subject to a lot of criticism and you have a reputation for being, if not litigious, but sending threatening emails to, you sent a threatening email to The Verge a couple of years ago. You got in a fight with a guy named Ross on Twitter. You and I have had a back and forth on Twitter. That was about something else. But when you think about getting people to think of these areas as legitimate, one of the things you've talked about a lot is that, well, regular therapy isn't very much scrutinized. Do you feel that it's been right that you've been so uh, pugnacious about it? Or do you think that people need to say, wait a second, let's let's consider this a solution that's important because it helps people in pain? You know, I would divide two things. One is my particular personality and my issues, um, and uh, and I and I can uh, lose it from time to time. But that's me. I've learned to accept myself after many years of therapy, okay. <laughs> uh, and and it's not necessarily always the right thing to do. Yeah. Of course, uh, I acknowledge. Yeah, you shouldn't it. have fought with Ross. That Ross fight was a mistake. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I think, and 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 you and I, I think we can agree on something else, which is the purpose of Twitter and Facebook and, and, and all those platforms are addiction and they're very good at that. Yeah. I actually think that the level of resistance that Talkspace has faced is less than I would have um, anticipated. This is a very traditional set of professions uh, that has in many ways, you know, has not changed for close to 100 years. And I understand that what we do threaten people, mostly on the clinical side uh, of the traditional in, uh, industry, in a way that is almost existential. And you can see a really uh, strong polarization from people like Irv Yalom. And he wrote an entire chapter about us in the book because his point was, you know, it helps, therefore it's great. And some others who have been very, very uh, aggressive in protecting their turf, I can understand it. I can actually empathize and identify with that. And I think it's part of the price that you have to pay. So I accept it with love. Oren, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez and Carol Sabaro, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lint, and Liril Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcast, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with couples counseling led by me, which means you are sure to get divorced, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Listening.